This is the Abraham's Wallet podcast. Abraham's Wallet spans the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss. Welcome back to the show, my Abraham McComies. This is the final installment on the topic of inheritance. I'm hoping to wrap it up and give you some discrete examples of the steps I'm taking to move towards biblical inheritance opportunities for my own multi-generational outpost. But before I do that, let's quickly recap what we know about inheritance as described in the Bible. If you want the full recap, just go back and listen to the last two episodes and you'll get a hefty dose of what I'm talking about here. But first, inheritance is always tied to identity. Second, inheritance consists of productive resources, not piles of cash. And third, inheritance requires work and claiming on the part of the recipient. In order to fully understand why I would make those claims, you're just going to have to go back and listen to the first two parts if you haven't heard those. So I will wait right here for you if you want to pause this episode and jump back in in just a minute. Okay, glad you're back. And I hope this doesn't burst your bubble, but I'm not going to give you a whole bunch of tips on which hedge funds to invest in if you want to leave a legacy. Sorry, but by now hopefully you've gathered that inheritance has a whole lot more to do with the culture of your household than it has to do with the balance in your bank accounts. So, with that in mind, let's start on my top tips for inheritance-minded family leaders. Just a side note, this is a quick list and every item that I'm going to talk about could be its own article. Uh, But hopefully this will get your juices flowing and give you some good practical examples to wrap up everything we've been talking about here the last couple weeks. So, bucket numero uno, family rhythms. First tip here, establish your family identity. You can't pass on identity-laden resources if you never established an identity in the first place. So it all goes back to the household. What is your purpose, vision, and mission as a family? These are huge concepts with repercussions all over the place. So if you've never defined those things, stop worrying about your money. You'll do more damage than good if you manage to save up some and pass it down, unless you happen to dump it onto a younger generation that's actually done the work to establish those things for their own future generations. You should have these ingredients, purpose, vision, and goals, thought through, debated over, prayed on, and written down before you proceed with any of the other recommendations I'm going to give you. If you need some help with that, head over to abrahamswallet.com, sign up for our email list, and we will send you our annual uh, vision and goals summit guide. That's a great place to start if you're thinking, well, how would I even develop a, a purpose, vision, and goals statement? Go there. It's free. So, number two, train your children. As a father with aspirations of leaving some inheritance behind, I'm very intentionally focused on building kids who know how to handle lots of money when it comes their way, and who also know how to make and increase money so that they have no fear of deploying it to all the wonderful places it can go. That is to say, they can give it all away or invest it in a great opportunity and not worry that they won't eat because they know how to make more money. Some of the opportunities for training kids and money skills are obvious. 
Things like encourage the lemonade stand and then talk to them about what to do with the proceeds. Uh, involve your kids in every aspect of household management you possibly can, even from a very young age. And that includes the finances. Walk through the concept of budgeting with them in an appropriate way. Uh, socialize the idea of saving for big purchases. So, for example, my nine-year-old understands that in seven years, if she wants to buy a car, she'll be paying half. Yes, that really will happen. And if you're wondering, yeah, I would be able to buy her a car with cash that will impress her friends and blah, blah, blah. But that's not going to happen. She hasn't yet grasped the magnitude of that undertaking, but at least it's starting to form up in her brain. Again, I'm not doing it because I need her help in the purchase. I'm doing it because I want her first opportunities for success and failure with money to happen while she's under my care. There, she'll be free to fail and encouraged when she succeeds. And like the father does with me, I'll entrust her with more when she proves faithful with the small first steps. I also use a concept that I stole from my good friend and a fabulous father, uh, Adam Elrod, called the Bank of Dad. All of my kids have real bank accounts, but they also invest with the Bank of Dad, which offers a 10% APR savings rate of return. Try it. You'll be surprised at the impact of receiving a whole dollar just for leaving 10 bucks in the bank for a year on a younger child. It'll at least produce the following. One, an interest in watching their money grow. Two, a desire to put more into investing than cash because why not put that money to work? And three, an inherent understanding of compound interest. Uh, next, at Abraham's Wallet, we recommend a kitty course called Financial Peace Junior. I'll restate for the record that we're not always huge Dave Ramsey fans, but we do like this course. It'll teach your kids giving, saving, and spending, and it'll do it in a fun, age-appropriate way. I did it when my kids were five and seven, and they took to it like fish and water. If you put zero effort into training your kids around money, you are personally guaranteeing that your inheritance will go to an undertrained recipient. And it's just as much on your head as theirs when they blow it. If a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, then a financial education is a part of that inheritance. So train your benefactors before they ever receive your loot. Here's another one, forced spending. Of course, when it comes to training our children to manage money, we don't start out with large sums. We start out with small sums. So to this end, I've recently developed a practice of handing out a few bucks to each of my kids and mandating that they spend it. My girls, being eager to please their dad and observant of his frugality, often will you know, save and give 100% of the money that they earn because they think that's what I want. And I'll be honest, this warms my heart a little bit, but I'd be in dereliction of my duty if I never also taught them how to spend well. So. I send them out with money and let, the, let them feel the pain of wasting five bucks on cheap junk. Or the joy of selecting an ice cream with mom on a hot summer day. I'm delighted when they win or if they fail because they almost always learn something about wise spending in this process. I know a guy who walks into a Whole Foods, hands his kids $8 in cash and says, dinner is what you buy. That is an interesting and good training idea in my opinion. So, number four, get used to inequity. 
This might blow your egalitarian minds, but I don't think that perfect equity of distribution is a very wise idea when it comes to inheritance. Depending on circumstances, I am already preparing my kids to see that we as a family will be investing in places that present the best opportunities for the growth and flourishing of the family. Most families, when they're setting up a family trust, will drop a line in there about not distributing resources to a child that has a drug problem, for example. For us, we just take this a step further and say, we won't be hamstrung by the belief that every child deserves an equal split of all the family's resources. If I end up with a child who's qualified and interested in carrying on the family business, then my little CEO could very well end up with more than their siblings. For now, this is mostly didactic, and I admit it's tricky territory to teach this lesson while never allowing a smidge of suspicion that our love is flowing more to one child than another. But I don't back away from the idea that we're creating a multi-generational war chest, not a standard of living bump for one fancy generation. And that being the case, the lion's share of this outpost's armory will almost certainly go under the stewardship of the heir who shows the sharpest predilection toward that end. Number five, talk about spouse finding now. I'm relatively confident that I'm doing all that I can to bring up daughters who understand our family purpose and vision and who can wisely manage the family's resources and capitals. But I'm also aware that they're very likely to get married someday and that I haven't had the opportunity to train their future husbands from childhood in these skills. So we focus a lot of energy on the next best thing by talking often about what kind of men these girls will be looking for. And even though it's not the top item on the list, wise financial manager is on the list of characteristics they'll be looking for. We seed that into our conversations on purpose. I've been waiting for a chance to use this quote that our friend George Thornhill put into an email to me a couple weeks ago. If you'll remember from the blog, he wrote about what it was like to go from being a millionaire to completely broke in just a few weeks. Um, but he wrote me a note, and since it's loosely on topic now, I'll tell you what he said. He said, Our daughters will be raised under our roofs and say to some man-boy who comes sniffing around, Nope, you, sir, are a moron. Back off. You have no idea how to sacrificially serve anyone but yourself. So that's the reason why training your children in spouse finding is a key ingredient to prepare your future generations for biblical inheritance. Again, who am I handing the keys over to my outpost? Uh, I don't take that question lightly. Number six, let your children see you choose the family over yourself. <clears throat> it's all moot if the unique purpose and vision that the family has established doesn't have any implications for you, Dad. Abraham was really rich and comfortable when he was handed a new purpose and vision from God. And it changed everything for him and for every Israelite patriarch that followed him, so much so that any time God bumped into a new Jew on earth, he usually identified himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Seems like these fathers effectively established a new family identity around following their God, and their children regularly saw them bleeding for that vision. You may not be trekking across the wilderness with a future nation on your hands, but when your children see you choose the family over work, it tells a story about what you care about. 
This is really the only way you're going to convince your children that the vision you've outlined matters when they see that it costs you something to move towards it. Whether it's rapaciously protecting your family's Sabbath, saying no to a promotion that would mean lots of travel, or even relocating the whole crew to a new city, let your children see you choose the family over yourself. It's the number one way to preach against the modern disease in which we see ourselves as points rather than part of a line. So that's bucket number one, family rhythms that can help you build an inheritance culture in your family. Bucket number two, I'm just going to give you some tactical moves. I don't like to leave you without any highly practical steps if I've convinced you to at least explore the idea of biblical inheritance. So the next few things are some vehicles that, in my opinion, can be excellent pathways for inheritance-minded families. Number one, building companies. Family businesses are to multi-generational family builders what steroids are to bodybuilders. You can get a pretty good looking result without them, but freakishly huge results just don't come unless you inject a little of this into your systems. And unlike steroids, a good family business will rarely leave you with shriveled gonads, so that's a plus. Hopefully, we'll get much more on this topic later, but my purpose in this podcast isn't to teach you how to start a family business. Instead, I'm, I'm really just putting it into your brain that even if you're happily working away for a Fortune 500 company right now, starting, acquiring, or laying the foundation for a future family business could be just the ticket to creating a household where inheritance is healthy. The reason goes back to our definition of biblical inheritance. A family-run business always requires the inheritor to continue working in order to extract value. It bears the fingerprints of previous managers, who are often parents and grandparents, that's the identity-laden piece, and it is productive if it has lasted long enough to be passed from one generation to the next. So businesses make great inheritances. Number two, think about your real estate investing. Some of you are not going to start a business. And that does not exclude you from the biblical inheritance game. So please don't stress out. The biggest asset that many of you will accumulate over your lifetime is going to be real estate. While some folks will sell their homes and head to Florida in retirement to spin down all that accumulated equity, biblically, this is known as lame. You, my Abrahamic aspirant, are wondering if you could turn that house into some biblical inheritance. And I have some good news for you. If you think back to a post we put up on the blog a while back with Mr. Justin Wolfenberg, he reminded us that there are only two assets mentioned in the Bible that are multi-generational. Those would be children and land. Although most of us don't have sprawling family farms to expand and cultivate these days, most of us do have some land. And if you're not interested in children, why are you listening to our podcast? But here's a couple quick tips to make your real estate investment potentially a driver of biblical inheritance. One, look for assets that can be family gathering places for many generations to come. Is the two-bedroom vacation condo really going to bless your family when there, are grand, when there are grandkids attached to your children? In our family, we don't currently own any real estate outside our primary home. But we're on the hunt for property that could be developed in a stepwise fashion. We may be able to afford some acreage and maybe a small home. I'm really into these container homes lately. But a requirement for us is that whatever we select could be expanded over generations. 
That way, when I hand the keys over to my children and their families, they will feel both excited and responsible for expanding this family resource in new ways. Number two, even your primary home can be more or less slanted towards multi-generational thinking. We love our current home, and it checks many of our boxes for this, but we can imagine a home that has even more possibility for multiple generations under one roof. Great working from home options and also neighborhood affordability so we could surround ourselves with other family and friends who want to live within sight lines of each other. Today we have a home that's near to family and friends, but because we got in at a great time, our neighborhood has become a bit pricey for many of the folks who want to live near us. We also have plenty of room for an older generation to live with us, but no space where they could live separately but near. So I'm thinking, you know, that garage apartment or even a separate um, a separate structure that's near our house that would be a great place for multiple generations to live on the same property. I suspect that we might make an effort to buy one of the five houses that borders ours now so that we could make our own setup more feasible for this type of living in the long run. And if we come across a whole block that is affordably for sale, we're moving. Next, don't overvalue the dream home. Place primary value on the ways in which a home can align to your family's purpose and vision. We'll probably do a whole podcast on this someday, but it'll involve a lot of the ingredients I'm already talking about here. And lastly, investment properties can provide lots of flexibility as inheritance vehicles. Rental properties provide streams of income, especially once they've been paid off, that can either be a primary occupation for future generations or that can fuel other productive ventures. If there's a great-great-grandson down the line who finds that he has a passion for technology, the cash flow from that fourplex you just bought might just fund his ability to develop a new tech startup that he will add to the family business bankroll. Okay, third bucket is investing in the right vehicles. If you're feeling frustrated by all my tips, thinking, hey, Mark, I'm not an entrepreneur, and I live in California, where your talk of acquiring multiple chunks of real estate makes you sound like an out-of-touch mook, well, maybe this is the section for you. Almost everybody who's listening to this already does and should save and invest using some of the traditional vehicles like stocks and bonds. I am not anti-investments of this sort. In fact, I manage investment accounts, 401k plans, and the like for a living, and I think they're great. Here's a few ways to think about inheritance when it comes to your investing behavior. Ready? One, the Grandchild 529 plan. If you're interested in fulfilling on Proverbs 13.22 and leaving an inheritance for your children's children, then I think there's hardly a better way for most people to start out than via the wise use of a 529 plan. If you want all the details on this, we did a whole podcast on it just a couple weeks ago, so go look for that. Next, use trusts wisely. See, when I was young, I thought trusts were just for lazy coke addicts whose parents would bear most of the responsibility for their near-certain youthful demise. But then I had kids and began to investigate what would happen if, say, my wife and I chose the wrong night to share a plate of discount fugu. You see, fugu is the puffer fish that uh, if, if you don't eat it from the right chef, it just kills you instantly. That played a lot better when it was written in the blog where I could give you a little link to, to Fugu. But anyways, hot tip. If we both died 
our sizable insurance policies would pay out and leave our kids with, yeah, a boatload of cash the day they turned 18. And this is precisely the kind of scenario I've spent the last three podcasts warning you about. So we set up a couple of living trusts instead. And these allow us to speak for ourselves even when we're gone meaning that we can partition money for specific purposes and even put restrictions on when and how the money will be distributed. Trust can be an excellent tool, especially when combined with a family vision and purpose statement, for structuring your money around your vision. While we're not excited about an early demise, we don't think it would be an automatic end to the vision for our family that the Lord has entrusted us with. And lastly, trusts aren't just for dead and disabled folks. Back when I was starting this, this series on inheritance, I talked about the billionaires who committed to giving all their money away before they die. Bless those guys, but does it seem to you like they aren't just giving? They're also kind of consuming when they enjoy the accolades of the whole world fawning over their generosity? Maybe. Instead of going that route, our family uses a giving trust so that we can take some of our funds and allow them to be a resource for future generations to continue stewarding and giving the money that we've been entrusted with. We invest these funds wisely, just like we do our own retirement and investment accounts, but we give opportunistically. Because of our charitable trust, I have high hopes that one of the inheritances we'll leave our kids is a fund which they'll be entrusted with growing and wisely distributing. So, yeah, we need to keep the kid finance books on heavy rotation. Well, this series is starting to feel like a saga, so I think it's time to wrap it up. We've talked through the fact that inheritance isn't godless selfishness dressed up as finance. It's actually a key tool for a multi-generational outpost builder like you, and it deserves some thought, planning, and mindful execution. And that's why I ended this whole series with a bunch of practical tips for getting going. If you picked any two of the 25 methods I just suggested... Yep, there's 25, I counted. And you actually started applying them. You'd be well on your way to some good stuff and way ahead of the curve as well. So come on, boys. It's time to think hard about the long term. Get building on that inheritance and get planning on how it'll get transferred to a smarter, more educated generation than yourself. Here's to building a legacy that outlives you. For Abraham's Wallet, I'm Mark Barrett.